Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning again. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, it is a joy to be with you. And I just, I love this weather. There's something about it. I, um, it was a joy for, to spend this kind of weather with many of you yesterday as well at the farm, um, sliding down slides and, and feeding animals and all sorts of fun things. Uh, as we get started this morning, we have been in a series in the lectionary. I wouldn't call it a series. We've been in the lectionary in the Old Testament, kind of bouncing around between the different prophets. Uh, I think last week we did Psalm, we talked about Psalm 23, the Lord being our shepherd. Um, this is a passage that probably, uh, it's been a while since you've been in the book of Malachi, uh, but we get to hear something, I think, hopefully helpful from a book that can feel pretty obscure. Uh, that may feel unfamiliar. Um, so as we get into the book of Malachi together this morning, let me pray for us. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we ask you this morning to open our ears to the things that you want us to hear this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Amen. The passage this morning in Malachi is about... The neglect of something that seems really small. But what seems really small and the neglect of that small thing has resulted in big problems for the the people of Judah. The problem is that the people have been giving less and less and less of their agriculture and their contributions um, to the temple. These gifts were necessary for Judah's temple to function properly. And and as a result, they were experiencing a lean harvest, which is something that would have been consistent with uh, God's covenant to them as it's outlined in in the Torah, the first five books. Here's a little bit of background to this book. If you're not used to Malachi, it's in the 6th century. uh, Actually, it's not, but before that, in the 6th century BCE, so in the 500s, the Babylonians, which would be modern-day Iraq, came over, and they um, took most of the southern kingdom of Judah into exile, forcibly moving the whole population into what is now Iraq. Uh, And God was faithful, as he promised over and over again, I will remove you, but I will bring a remnant back. And he does that. The Persians would come uh, in the 5th century, and they would defeat the Babylonians. Which, again, the Persians, you can think modern-day Iran, so just a little bit to the east. They came, they defeat the Babylonians, and what's called the Achaemenid dynasty of the Persians, uh, they allow the Jews to return to their land, uh, or a remnant of them. Because the, the Achaemenid Empire had this really interesting policy of toleration that allowed for different cultures to exist and different religions to function, with some amount of autonomy. I mean, as long as you were paying your taxes, it was fine. Unlike Babylon, which uh, created sort of a monolithic type of culture and empire. And so there are books in the Bible that actually claim to be from this period. 
when the Achaemenids were ruling over Israel, uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, Daniel, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and our friend today, Malachi the prophet. Um, These books are really helpful windows into a really unique period in Israel's history where they have come back from exile and they're having to restore everything in the land that was lost. How are God's people now supposed to, I mean, by now, I mean in Malachi's time, how are they supposed to live out God's covenant when they're a vassal state, when they're accountable to a king that is a foreign ruler and they're allowed to have a governor but not a king, where the city walls are a wreck, where the temple has been destroyed and needs to be rebuilt, and the people are now paying taxation to a pagan government. How are they supposed to function? And how are they supposed to live out covenant faithfulness in the midst of that? And so we come to this dialogue that begins in verse 6 of Malachi chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there and go there on your phone. God declares, almost like a creedal statement, I am the Lord, I do not change. And so the second line, after God says he doesn't change, is that the descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. There's some causality there, a relationship. Because the Lord does not change, he is also faithful to his covenant, which stipulated that he would preserve a remnant at that time. And that's why the southern kingdom hasn't been completely destroyed. It's why God has brought back this remnant to Judah. Because God's character is such that he delights in the turning of sinners to himself more than he delights in destruction. In fact, he has no delight in destruction, as a, a Chip preached about a couple weeks ago from the book of Ezekiel. God wants for sinners to turn to him. And so we find in Scripture that God is warning over and over and over again before any action is taken. And even when action is taken, like they're taken into Babylon, there is this hope and this reality that they can return. He compares their unfaithfulness now in this passage to previous generations uh, who were unfaithful, even from the time of when God had delivered them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness of Sinai, and they were grumbling then. He compares this group of of post-exilic Jews to the unfaithful who were grumbling in the wilderness. And then they ask, so the people now ask this question. We get a a question from their lips in verse 7. And the prophet phrases their question as, How shall we return? So the people are asking, how shall we return? Is it that they don't know how to repent? Think about that for a second. Do they really not know how to repent? No, they know how to repent. It's over and over again in scripture, uh, the ways that they are are to um, repent and come to the Lord. So in this case, it's not that they don't know how to do that. In this case, what's actually behind their question is a rhetorical question which is, how do we repent if we haven't done anything wrong? How should we return to the Lord? In other words, why would I come back to the Lord? I, there's no reason to. I, I'm fine. Like, I haven't done anything wrong. And I, and I like the New Living Translation here actually captures this idea. They say, how can we return when we have never gone away? This is the, the idea is, Lord, what you're accusing me of, I haven't actually done. Um, is essentially what they're saying to God, which means that Judah, um, as a collective whole, and the individuals within it, 
have deceived themselves. Like they have come under the spirit of deception such that they do not know their need to come back to the Lord. They had been robbing God is what this text says. And, and it's not that it's not that God is dependent on people's offerings. So when we go to the Old Testament, it's not like, oh, God is hungry. We should feed him. Right. That's not what's going on here. The tithe was more like an agricultural temple tax that fed the priests and it provided the resources that were necessary for the offerings to happen as part of Israel's worship. It kept the temple system going, but the whole temple was to the benefit of the people. God has no needs. Again, he does not change. Um, The people are missing the opportunity to be formed in worship, not because God desperately needed food. And, And actually, that's an important point because that distinguishes their God from the gods of their pagan neighbors. So when you read ancient Near Eastern texts, it is often the case that these offerings are meant to feed the gods. And the gods get angry when they're not fed and they destroy because they're hungry and they're hangry. Um, and so this distinguishes them from their pagan neighbors. And there's this really interesting subtle wordplay in the book of Malachi. He calls them sons of Jacob. Jacob. The name Jacob, um, Yaakov in Hebrew, so Yaakov, uh, has this idea of supplanting a, or circumventing. And you can remember back to uh, Jacob's birth where it talks about him grasping the heel of his twin brother Esau on the way out of the womb. And then later on, you know, this famous example of Jacob taking the birthright from his brother, um, essentially stealing it, and then and de- yeah, deceiving his father. Uh, out of giving the birthright to the oldest son. Well, the word for robbery or deception in this chapter is a, is a word that only occurs here and in one verse in the book of Proverbs. Uh, and this is the rare word kava, kava. And, and, that, and it has the sense of defrauding somebody. And so there's this play on words with Jacob's name. Ya, you sons of Yaakov, you kava the Lord. Um, you are stealing from God. It doesn't come across in English. Uh, I, I guess I could say something like, listen, sons of Robert, why do you rob the Lord? But it doesn't translate that well, right? Um, so there's a wordplay here to highlight the fact and the depth to which they are causing an offense. All right, they weren't offering to the Lord the full tithe, the temple tax that was asked for. And if they defraud God in something so simple... Um, something so earthly. Imagine what other shortcuts they're currently making or they're going to make later. And so I know that uh, to clear up a misconception, I know the word tithe is often used in churches to refer to a tenth, the giving a tenth of somebody's income. Um, But they're not exactly the same thing when we think of an Old Testament tithe. Again, this was more like a temple tax. And again, it's an agrarian economy. The Persians invented coins. The temple tax was an agricultural thing that you gave. A tenth of your produce you give for the function of the temple to keep it going. And so it wasn't money per se, but an agricultural gift. And so don't don't hear me say, uh, if you're not giving 10% of your income to the church, then you run the risk of God's curses. Uh, That would not be accurate. Uh, That would not be a helpful way to interpret the Old Testament uh, here and what the tithe is. Having said that, St. Paul does in the New Testament talk about um, God's desire and longing for a cheerful giver. 
And so we should delight in what God is doing in the church, and we should delight in contributing to what God is doing in the church. Um, There's a joy to joining in God's work with our finances that is formative for us if we would allow that to happen. Um, Again, there is, yeah, joining in the work of God with your finances is a formative kind of joy. But I would compare that more to the Old Testament free will offering. Uh, There is a, a joyful type of gift where you delight in seeing God's work come about. It is not a temple tax of 10% of your agriculture. And so one of the spiritual realities that I've been gleaning from this passage this week is the subtle ways that we deceive ourselves um, and and the risk that we we run in deceiving ourselves and, and really rob ourselves of being formed in God's image. Like what God is delighting in is forming you into the image of Christ. And so what shortcuts do we take that rob us of those opportunities? This passage then I think is a a warning against self-deception as much as it invites us to come to the Lord in repentance. So there are a thousand and one ways that we deceive ourselves. And I, and I can't be comprehensive uh, in 20 minutes. But one of the larger tropes of self-deception in Northern Virginia uh, that I often hear is that I just don't have enough time. I don't know. All of a sudden the room sort of shrank. <laughs> I don't have, I don't have enough time. Uh, that's, that is anecdotally. I think as I've talked to a lot of people in Northern Virginia, they wish that they were spending their time differently than they currently are, which I think is interesting. Now, some of that can't be helped, right? Because we have seasons of life, like when you have five kids and your youngest one's in diapers. There are some limitations on your time. You know, but um, there are seasons in our lives where certain parts of our uh, certain parts of our life have God given limits. And as we adhere to those, we find God's grace in the limits. I understand that I have my own as well. But if the season that we're in becomes the ultimate reality, that if we ultimately wish we were spending all of our time differently than we are, then that is a real problem. And so I was reminded last week of this quote uh, by a guy named W. Edwards Deming. He, he says, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. It's as true for the broader system of a church plant uh, as as much as it is for the individual systems that make up our lives. So in other words, you can think of it like this. If I don't like the results that I am getting in my life or in the church, um, then what I need to ask is, is there something wrong in the system? If I don't like the results I'm getting, is there something wrong in the system? And I'll use myself as an example. Like I wish that I was more consistent in my prayer times with my son. Now that he can actively learn, I wish that I was more consistent with him in that. I wish that I did a better job of working out. Uh, I wish that I did a better job of making space to know my neighbors, right? And it's easy for me to just kind of blow it off and go, well, gosh, I just have no time. I just have no time for those things that I really feel called to do. But if I'm brutally honest, and I have been this week, um, it's totally a justification. And it's it's a voice of self-deception. My system, like the way I organize my life, 
is, is perfectly crafted for the results that I am getting right now. Um, I have set up a system to function and get the results that I am getting. So I need to tweak this system and I need to change things in my calendar to get the results that I feel like God is leading me to get. Uh, if I need to work out, I need to cancel some meetings. If I want to uh, pray with my son, then I need to figure out how to not make it a mad dash to get out of the house in the morning. Right? Each of these things are part of the system that needs to be tweaked. And so each of those results have habits that need to change. Then they have beliefs that need to be reformed. And they have fears that need to be addressed. So besides the theological discussion in Malachi, there's a lot of helpful material out there on self-deception uh, in psychology and in leadership development. And I had been reading one article this week, and uh, the author laid out some of the unintended effects of self-deception. And I really liked his list, so I thought I'd share a few of the things here. Self-deception makes it harder to grow and develop because we are not seeing our own flaws clearly. Self-deception can detract from our mental and emotional clarity. It can lead to numbing behaviors like binge-watching, overwork, drinking, overreacting to things. It can lead to inaccurate judgments, poor decisions, since we don't really have good data. It can lead us to deceive uh, others and not just ourselves. And so that, in turn, weakens our friendships and our relationships with other people. And so, again, that's not exhaustive. I just thought those were a couple helpful, interesting effects of self-deception. And I wonder, then, if there are some simple practices we might take on to be honest with ourselves before the Lord, to recognize places of self-deception, again, so that unlike in Malachi, we don't end up in this place where we say, Lord, how, how can I return to you? I've done nothing wrong. So first, be honest with the results that we're getting. Be honest with the results that we're getting. You can ask the question, you know, is this really what I was hoping for? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Are these results producing in me the love of Christ? Are they producing the love of Christ in me? Um, the love of Christ for others? If not, is there something wrong in the system? Are there rhythms and practices that I've developed that are keeping me... In, in getting the results that I'm currently getting. Then the next thing we want to do is ask what beliefs under, are undergirding the behaviors that we have set. What beliefs undergird those behaviors? And alongside the beliefs, then, it's also good to ask what we are afraid of and what makes us feel insecure. Um, and that that is really hard to do because what we want to do then is say, be honest with the Lord, like, I'm Lord, I am afraid that people will perceive me as incompetent? Um, like, what fears do I have that are leading to the behaviors that I hold, that are uh, the beliefs that I have that lead to the behaviors that I'm doing, that lead to the results that I'm getting? And how do those beliefs and fears map onto what we know of Christ in Scripture? And so we need this habit of being in the Scriptures to continually map those fears and beliefs onto, to correct, to renew, to reform them. So, four levels. Results, habits, beliefs, fears. Naming our fears can really help us as we're trying to protect ourselves from shame. Uh, those who are close to you that you can trust, 
those people can be a really invaluable uh, asset to you in this process who can confirm your suspicions about the insights that you're gaining. Like, you know, uh, Stephen, does this seem true of me, right? And you can point it out and say, yeah, that, that strikes me as something that is true uh, and, and can echo that or say, have you thought about this? So the result of rooting out self-deception, not just pointing it out but getting rid of it, is not necessarily that we be delivered from suffering. In verses 9 through 12, God tells the people to test him. And if they would fulfill their vows, then he says he would overflow the, the temple treasury and they would have more than enough produce to eat and to bring. And so I want to be careful here because there is a way to read this that could be unhelpful. We don't, we don't want to read this to mean if you're faithful, then you'll experience material blessings. We don't want to read that, this that way. This is in the context of the Old Testament covenant. God had made certain promises, uh, and there was a, quite a bit of materiality that in the new covenant uh, becomes spiritual reality. So it's not that if we were to just be faithful, that God would give us all that our hearts desire uh, and more materially. That belief, would, that belief would make walking with God a series of transactions. And quite frankly, it wasn't true of Jesus, who was faithful more than any human who ever lived on the face of the earth. And so you can, you can see this belief, though, in certain Christian movements that would say, you know, if you just give money to this ministry, then you'll get it back tenfold materially, right? Like send in your, um, uh, your, your mortgage and uh, you know, God will take care of it. Uh, it makes faithfulness transactional. It's more subtle in other spaces. It may not just be money. Um, you know, if our nation would just be more morally upright and pray more, then maybe God would heal our land and make us prosperous. Right? That's another form of this message. Um, if I choose not to work on Sundays, then God will financially bless my business. Um, that was another subtle one in some reading I remember back in the 90s. Um, another form of it can be in relationships. In purity culture um, that I was taught in the 90s, I, re I remember one of the teachings was, you know, if you remained abstinent before marriage, that you would have better sex when you were married, which isn't true um, necessarily. Even the expectation that if I'm kind to other people and I just have good friendships with other people and I'm kind, that, that they will always reply to me in kindness. Uh, not always true. Again, remember Jesus. For whom that was not true. So in each of those scenarios, there is a partial truth, right? This is where it's a little tricky. It is absolutely good to financially give towards God's work in joy. God wants us to call on him in prayer. It is good and pleasing to the Lord to save sex for marriage. It is good and a delight to the Lord to set up good Sabbath rhythms of rest and of worship. It is God honoring to be kind and humble towards others. Um, but we don't do those things for material benefit, right? We don't do those things in order that God might give us more material blessings. We honor the Lord in virtue for our own good, that we would be formed and fashioned into the image of Christ and to lean on God's love, that, um, that he would show his love towards others in us as it's formed in us. 
And so it may not change our circumstances. It may not change our suffering, but it will change us to be faithful to the Lord and to recognize blind spots. So God will continue his kingdom work. And um, if we plan to join him in faithfulness uh, of what that means, then we need to be deeply honest with ourselves about the places that we might be deceiving ourselves. So this week, as an exercise, let's run through those four steps that I mentioned earlier about self-deception. Consider the results that we're getting, the habits we have, the beliefs that we hold, and the fears that are present. Again, results, uh, habits, beliefs, fears. And then begin to offer those things to the Lord, starting with our fears. But offer them to the Lord and then see what he might spiritually do in us. There is this promise of blessing and provision. And while it may not be the um, escape of suffering, there is this promise of formation of Christ in us. And so something else we might try this week is to pray the great litany. You may not have heard that before, but it's in your book of common prayer. It's on page 91, and it is a really helpful way to look at blind spots in our spiritual journey. It prays for a lot of things, a lot of things that we wouldn't think to pray for, like even safety for sailors on the sea. Um, There are all kinds of things that it prays for. And so as we close this morning, as we think of Malachi 3, rooting out self-deception, I want to end with a moment, some time of silence. And also some of the two of the prayers from the great litany. And so let's take a moment to just be silent before the Lord. And then I'll go ahead and pray for us. From all blindness of heart. From pride vanity, and hypocrisy, from envy, hatred, and malice, and from all lack of charity. Good Lord, deliver us. That it may please you to give us true repentance, to forgive us all of our sin, negligence, and ignorance and to endue us with the grace of your Holy Spirit to amend our lives according to your holy word. We beseech you to hear us, good Lord. This we pray through Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate. Amen.